0: holy moly i haven't said that in years and the reason i'm saying that is because this week's episode get ready to have your mind blown i sat i mean you're not gonna see my video of me talking to the guest this week but pretty much my job was open a lot of the time just in awe and uh and, you know, I get really excited every week about who's on here and I especially get excited when it's someone who's an author of a book that has just like changed my brain and how I see things. And I, I really love this guest that I had this week. I read his book got recommended to me about two years ago, maybe two and a half. And I remember reading it and thinking like, why doesn't everybody know this? Why don't we all talk about this? And think about that, 2016, so I read it in 2017, and the conversations that we're having are about today, uh, the podcast episode, is about inherited family trauma, just inherited trauma. And that is a fairly normalized conversation now in the world of psychology and development and relational patterns and why we do what we do, is really looking back at our inherited trauma and our inherited patterns. And I mean, this was pretty new to the main psychological conversation when his book came out and he's been doing this work for, I believe, over 30 years. So this conversation was so incredible. I can't wait to hear the nuggets you get from this and just like how powerful this is for you because it was super powerful for me. The stories he tells and the examples he gives, I mean, gosh, I know you're thinking like, Get to it, yo, Groves. Come on, chop, chop, speed it up. Don't fast forward me. I know you have that button. Don't do it. So before I welcome uh, Mark Willen, he, uh before I do that, I want to ask an uh, a favor. If you could go to wherever you listen to this podcast and give it five stars and a written review, that's so helpful for me. And you know what? I'm going to now just go to the podcast because we're ready to rock and I'm super excited. So without further ado, here's Mark and Mark, you know, yeah, okay. Hello and welcome back to another episode. I am super excited to introduce to you today Mark Wolin. And this is coming from a very personal place in that I found your book, randomly through a friend who recommended it because I was talking about just some family stuff when I was looking at my family tree. Yeah. And my good friend was like, you have got to read Mark's book. And for those of you listening, it's called It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. So welcome. I'm so excited you're here.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm really glad
0: to be here. Yeah, so I feel like talking about inherited family trauma and inherited wounding is now become um, a very top of mind topic. Uh, but when you're an OG, you're an original gangster in this world. You when did when did you publish your book? Uh,
1: the book came out in April of 2016, and you know the reason I even wrote it is because there was nothing out there on the topic, and we all live with this mystery that we can't explain. You know, we have these Uh, unexplained symptoms, uh, fears, anxieties, depressions we never get to the bottom of. And we never think to consider that this could be biologically inherited from our parents and grandparents. We we have the symptoms that we think are ours, and we just think we're wired this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're basically inheriting the stress response, the stress responses, Uh, to traumatic events that our parents and grandparents have experienced. And we, we rarely make the link. So I wrote this book. I was very excited about putting it out there and it's done quite, doing quite well. It's still very actively doing quite well.
0: Well, it's such an incredible topic. And I think for people who are really having a hard time connecting the dots, you know, like I don't understand why I can't get through this, or I don't understand where this is coming from, or this paralyzing fear and in your book, you reference a lot of cases, which I really appreciate um, because it gives us just a window into that world and what it might look like. So for someone who is dealing with sort of anything, how, how would they identify that it's inherited rather than something from current you know, experience?
1: Right. You know, we can be born with a feeling. And as I said earlier, never think to separate it from ourselves you know, a, a depression that we've had so long, we think it, um, it it's it's part of us. But there are also signs, um, signs of inherited trauma. Uh, we can experience a trigger event, maybe an age, uh, or, you know, we reach a certain age and all of a sudden we start experiencing some symptoms or an anxiety, or we leave home for the first time and we find ourselves sick, or, or even we get married and you know life goes great up until this marriage that all of a sudden we find ourselves married and and we're in this stuckness i remember i had these three sisters i worked with one time i mentioned them in the book they were from um, uh an arabic culture maybe lebanon or iraq i forget but uh the one sister came to me and said you know i w- love my husband i knew he was the right guy but as soon as i married him I felt trapped and I've been feeling this trappedness. And I, I can't explain it. I, I just my skin is crawling. Mm-hmm. Yet I love love this man. And you know, we looked back in her history and we saw that both grandmothers had been given away at age nine and twelve as child brides to these much older men in their 40s and 50s. And um, it was so interesting because uh-huh. it expressed differently, Mark, in each of the sisters. The the other sister, um, she married a man just like her grandmother's thirty years older, and her other sister would never get married at all, uh, lest she had this feeling of being trapped. So, you know what I've learned. What I've been learning is there are these signs, telltale signs, yeah, that, that we never connect. Um, for example, we, I'll give another example. We reach a certain age, maybe the age is thirty, and it's the age our grandma became a widow. And she never married again or 30 around 30. Low 30s is when our parents separated. And again, we don't question our relationships going fine. But as soon as we hit the trigger age, we look at our partner and we say, you know, he or she doesn't do it for me anymore without thinking that this is connected to the previous generations. It's not just ages. It's uh, certain milestones or events like I mentioned before, we get married, or you know, another one is maybe we move to a new place, and we don't think about it. But as soon as we make the move, we're feeling funky or, or, or depressed, without ever connecting that our parents or grandparents maybe were persecuted and forced out of their homeland. They lost their homeland, and just our moving into a new place has. Um, created this trigger event, which recapitulates, re-energizes the old traumatic anxiety that has passed forward.
0: Do you think, because those are all such fascinating experiences that unconsciously are causing some sort of disruption in our lives, and then as you were saying, we sort of place it on the event, but not on that there's an unhealed historical pattern. Do you think that those unyield historical patterns that show up do you think that they sort of live in the ether of our dna or do they or they or they um, i don't want to say simply because it's not simple but are or are they patterns of experience that we've observed um that or or we've heard about that then show up in our experience and we've never seen anyone resolve something like that or do you think it's a bit of both
1: it's such a great question and and this is really the direction where science is going right now they're trying to here let me let me start back with with science yeah um, so when a trauma happens physically it changes us literally it causes a chemical change in our dna and, and this can change the way our genes function and, and sometimes for generations multiple generations technically uh, there'll be a traumatic event and then because of the event uh we have this experience in our Cells are a chemical tag will attach to our DNA and tell the cell to use or ignore certain genes, enabling us to better deal with with the trauma. Uh, And and then the way our genes are affected will change how we act or feel. For example, we can become uh, sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to the original trauma. Um, And if that trauma happened in a past generation, we're inheriting the adaptation. So we have a better chance of surviving that trauma Mm -hmm. in this generation. Let's say our grandparents, they come from a a war-torn country. Yeah. And there's bombs going off and uh, people being lined up in the square, people being taken away, men in uniforms. They would develop, epigenetically, they would develop an adaptation Uh, Perhaps a skill set that it would look like in behaviors, a skill set of sharper reflexes or quicker reaction times, reactions to the violence to help us survive the trauma that they experienced. The problem is, is we're also inheriting a stress response with the dials set to 10 and we're constantly preparing for this war or these soldiers, or these men in uniform, or this catastrophe that never arrives, And we don't make the link that our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our depression, our shutdown is connected to our parents and grandparents. We think we're just wired this way. And so your question is, is it mm-hmm. science? Is it genes? Is it epigenetics? Or is it learning? Is it a learned environment? So what they're doing now is we're, we're able to study mice because mice and humans have a s- similar um, genetic makeup. So 90, over 90%, I think it's 92% of the genes in humans have counterparts in mice with over 80% being identical. So hmm. what they're doing is they're able to traumatize or cause adversity to mice. They can't do that to us. It's unethical. Yeah. Well, it's kind of unethical to do what the mice do, <laughs> yeah. but, they're, but they're doing it nonetheless. They, what they do is they cause loss or forced separation with the mice. And then they look at the effects and they can see that the effects can be observed for three generations with these epigenetic mechanisms. One of them is DNA methylation. Uh, another is histone modification. Another one that they're focusing on right now is small non-coding RNA. These are RNA molecules that attach to messenger. These are the non-coding. So RNA is made from DNA. And the, and, and it, it, it turns, it's like an information uh, molecule that turns, that, that makes proteins attach. And this turns chains on or off. Um, but these small non-coding RNAs, what they do is they attach to the messenger RNAs. They either augment the production of proteins or limit the production of proteins, thus turning on or off genes that will be helpful or not helpful. So that's the science. And what they're doing is they're traumatizing mice by either separating them from their mothers or and or I should say stressing out their mothers, freaking out their mothers by dropping their mothers in waters or water or putting them in glass tubes to make the mothers anxious anxious and then they're bringing the anxious mother back to the child or to the separated child so you've got two variables here you've got a child separated from the mother and you've got an anxious mother attending to the child and then they're looking at the effects of the child and they're noticing these epigenetic adaptations in the child and then What they're doing to make sure that it's just not a learned behavior is they're now separating out those stressed mice, taking the sperm from the stressed mice and injecting them into female mice that are not stressed, and again looking at the progeny, and then to make sure there's no learning between generation to generation, again separating out the stressed progeny, the stressed offspring, so there's no learning from the parent mice. And they're still seeing the effects. It's a great question that you ask. You're asking, um, Mm. is this learned or is this epigenetics? And the answer is looking like this is epigenetics, Mark.
0: Wow, that's crazy because I think of, so within that sperm is some sort of survival tactic, some epigenetic information. Yeah. When this combines with whatever egg, alert, alert. We are going to have a scary environment. You talk about that in one of the things that blew my mind in your book was talking about how when a mother is growing up in or in some form of war torn country and is pregnant and pregnant with a daughter. And you talked about how the eggs turn into, uh, or the cells that turn into eggs turn by like week nine or something in the daughter. So you have three generations of mothers in one, um, female. And so, it, it, what is, I guess, what's so fascinating for me in this is I never thought of the male being like the sperm I always thought was, you know, living and dying and not containing this information. It made sense that a daughter would be born. I mean, I never knew that before I read that, but <laughs> that a, a child would be in utero and being prepared for the environment. That makes sense when I learned it.
1: Yeah. So, um, te- technically, so when grandmother is five months pregnant with our mother, the egg that will one day become us is already in our mother's womb inside our grandmother. That's insane. So, so we, you know, we're speculating, of course. Yeah. But, you know, you're looking at three generations sharing the same um, shared biological environment. Uh, and now studies are mostly leaning toward looking at sperm rather than the egg because it's easier to track the sperm's influence on the fetus it's more complicated to look at the eggs influence. So most of the studies right now are looking at the ma- male line, but in the book I talk about you know trauma is an equal opportunity employer. <laughs> so in the book I talk about st- stress uh, from the mother st- stressed mothers and stressed fathers can equally affect sons and daughters. There's a recent study in um, Journal of American Medicine Psychiatry. Jama psychiatry that followed mothers who suffered trauma as children. And they found that their daughters were likely to struggle with depression and bipolar disorder. And now there's a recent Tufts University study that looked at human, you know, these are human studies. These aren't my studies. Mm-hmm. It looked at humans, men who suffered trauma as children. And they, did, they were able to show that the men, males, humans, not, not mice, were able to pass anxiety. Um, to their children via the sperm. And not only that, but this is the first study to show that the human sperm mirrored the same changes, the same non-coding RNA molecules, that's the genetic material that regulates gene expression, as the sperm as mice that were traumatized as pups. So yes, as you said, uh, our fathers can deliver a stress response via the sperm and our mothers are also carrying insults to the egg that um, she, she could have experienced generationally or in her mother's womb. And when you put the two together, we don't know what we're going to get. But, but what, <laughs> A party what I do of trauma and survival, I suppose. Exactly. But what I do in my book is, is I look at um, our trauma language, uh, both verbal and nonverbal, because how do we piece this stuff out? you know, people are always asking this question, how do I know? How do I know if I'm affected? How do I know if I'm carrying trauma? And of course, I ask, well, what's the issue you're working with? Well, I'm working with depression or I'm working with anxiety. And so what I do when I take a case is I take a verbal and nonverbal trauma language case, looking Mm -hmm. at you know you know since you read my book you know some of the questions that I ask in the book for example I ask mark what's your worst fear if the worst thing happened to you if things suddenly fell apart if things went terribly wrong what would be the worst thing that can and and that's one of the questions I use um, to determine our trauma language and people have all kinds of answers to that they might say uh, oh I'll be left I'll be abandoned I'll be rejected I'll be annihilated I won't exist or Or they'll use a generational sentence like, I'll harm a child, or I'll go insane, I'll be locked up, or I'll do something terrible, I'll be ostracized, I'll be hated by my community. And sometimes if you follow that verbal language, you'll see that that really did happen to somebody in the generation prior or the generation prior to that. But there's also a nonverbal trauma language that I work with. And this nonverbal trauma language, this this is the the fears, the phobias, the unusual symptoms, the anxieties that strike suddenly, like like we talked about earlier, that begin at a certain age. Yeah. Often it's the same age that something traumatic happened in the family history. Or, or we look for the depressions or the t- destructive behaviors, or the symptoms that keep repeating, Mark. We keep making the same, for example, I know you're in the field of relationships. We keep making the re- same relationship choices. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep choosing the partner who will hurt us or the partner who leaves us, just like in our family system. Our mother was mm-hmm. hurt by our dad, mother was left by dad. And we keep choosing partners similarly who will leave us or hurt us as though somehow. The trauma keeps unfolding until it has a time to heal, which I have a lot to say about (laughs) also, um, because I believe inside the trauma, inside the contraction, is also the seed of expansion, and it continues to repeat until it finds, you know, this uh, this is not an original idea. Freud said this 100 years ago when he talked about traumatic reenactment, when he talked about repetition compulsion, that the trauma is trying to seek a better outcome so when I'm working with somebody I look at how they deal with money how they deal in relationship how they're dealing in career do they have uh, self-sabotage self-sabotaging behaviors do they limit their success are they literally stepping in the same potholes over and over again and that's the nonverbal trauma language so there's nonverbal trauma language and there's verbal trauma language and as you know, What I do in my book is I have readers make a map and uh, what I call the core language map and to chart these things so they can link it to the things, the uh, events that happen with grandma or grandpa or mom or dad. When I loved your, in,
0: in, in the book, you talk about the family constellation. And one thing that I think we often don't do in families is pay attention to that. Even the person that dad or mom has an affair with is now part of the influence in our family that, you know, the people that we think are just peripheral players do have an influence. And that for me, I I mean, of course, I know that the, the dissolution of a relationship would have an influence. And then but as soon as you start to have these interactions with different people, maybe energetically, but even epigenetically, they start to have an influence on our
1: families. Exactly, exactly. So we don't think about it, but the victims or perpetrators in our family can have a dire effect on the descendants. Somebody can align unconsciously with the killer who killed members of his family, or somebody can align unconsciously with the victim. Uh, in his family, or the victim in another family, if our family member killed somebody. Wow. And then we're repeating behaviors, unconscious to us, that are connected to events. In... Can Can I tell a story? Um, yes, I think everybody listening is like,
0: mind is being blown, yeah. and a story is like an opportunity for them to understand it in real time. So yeah, I'd love yeah. I love it.
1: Okay, love I'll it. tell a story that's not I'm in the book here in
0: awe, So yeah, <laughs> it was great. Thank
1: you, Mark. Thank you. I'll tell a story that's not in the book. It was the very first case that taught me to look in this direction, and we're going back. We're going back twenty five years ago, twenty six years ago. I worked with this young woman who was a cutter. I'm going to call her Sarah, just for the yeah. sake of the interview. And I, I, I worked with Sarah. And she would cut. So here's the first part of her nonverbal trauma language. Sarah didn't just cut superficially like a lot of cutters do. She'd cut so deeply, Mark, that she'd cut a vessel. And she'd have to be rushed to the hospital. She'd cut in her arms, her leg, her abdomen so deeply that her parents would rush her to the hospital because she'd be bleeding to death. And then they'd fix her up and put her in a psych ward for about three weeks or a month. And one time when she came out, I handed Sarah a pen and I said to her, "Okay, so the first and I didn't know anything about epigenetics back then or looking back in the family history. I didn't know a darn thing. All I knew is how to work in the childhood back then or, you know, work with attachment, you know, uh, birth. Um, So I, I handed Sarah a pen and I said, Sarah, can you reenact this for me? can you show me what happens when you bring this knife slash pen to your arm and tell me the feeling in your body or the thought that arises right at that minute. So she takes the pen, puts it to her arm like she's about to uh, mimic the cutting. And she said, I, I I don't deserve to live. Now, Mark, here I am. I'm looking at a 30, I mean, a 24 year old woman whose life has just begun. Yeah. And, I, and I say, Sarah, what did you do? Did you harm somebody? Did you cause an accident in the car? Did you drive drunk? Did you break up with somebody who took his life? Did What happened here? And she said, no, nothing like that. So I didn't know what to do. So I looked in her childhood, and and I have these two pieces of information, verbal trauma language, I don't deserve to live, Yeah, and nonverbal language, almost bleeding to death. But I don't know what to do with it because it's my first case in this direction. And luckily, I asked the right question. So first, I looked at a relationship with her mom and dad. It's great. Loved her mom. Loved her dad. Was able to receive their love, receive their nurturance. You're like, Um, wait, there's more then. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So I looked at her attachment. Well, once again, dead end. A safe, secure, Secure. strong attachment with her mother. So luckily, I said the question. Uh, Sarah, tell me about your grandparents. And boom, she drops the bomb. Her grandmother was driving the car drunk. She was an alcoholic. And and next to her was Grandpa. She crashes into a pole. Grandma lives, but Grandpa goes through the window and gets cut, lacerated on the glass, and bleeds to death before the ambulance arrives. And in that moment, the whole story unfolded because who would who would feel that they didn't deserve to live?
0: Yeah, grandma, right away. Yeah. yeah. So
1: in that very moment, I went, oh, oh, she was identified with grandpa in the cutting and bleeding out and nearly bleeding to death as a way to bring him back into the family, back into remembrance. And she was feeling the feelings of the grandmother that I don't deserve to live. So I... I I did an easy session with her. I put footprints of her grandmother. and her. That's something I do when I work one-on-one with people. I use these foam rubber footprints out on the floor and had her close her eyes and see. I had her look at the footprints. There's your grandmother. There's your grandfather. Close your eyes and see them, even though she never met either of them because they were dead by the time she was born. And she said, hey, grandpa, I cut and nearly bleed to death. And I've been doing this for years. And I never realized that somehow this was connected to you and that I've been remembering your trauma by bleeding to death. Oh, grandpa, this is terrible. And I and I said to her, what's he showing? What's he doing? What's he showing you? What's he say? She said, he doesn't want me to do this anymore. Hmm. He said that every time I feel like cutting just to find that feeling in my body and breathe out to him. It was awesome. Wow. So she does this and she stops cutting and, I, and then I, she also uh, looked at her grandma and said, Grandma, I feel like I deserve to die, but I know it's not me that the name of the title of the book it didn't start yeah. with you, that <laughs> this didn't start with me, that I that this isn't me, grandma. It's not me that deserves to die. It was you. And every time I feel this, oh, you want me to breathe this feeling out to you too. And she does. And she never cuts again. But I wasn't stopping there. I had her bring her father in because those were his parents. And I said, Sarah, that's not her name. I said, Sarah, sit over there and I'm going to work with your father to bring his father and mother back into his heart because he was angry at his mother. So he blocked the love and he couldn't think of his dad without thinking of his terrible death. So I did a session with his father to help regenerate his love for his parents while Sarah watched it. And it was so beautiful. At the end of the session, the father turns to Sarah and says, you know what? you leave this trauma with me i'll take care of it and i'll take care of you and it was it was awesome she wow, never cut I it i got yet. shivers
0: that is beautiful yeah 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 there's um i mean i, I think what, for people listening i think one thing that is really powerful about that is and the the distinguished one thing i want to delineate or
1: understand is sarah didn't know that story she okay so A lot of people don't know the story. Sarah did know the story. A lot of times I'm telling people to go home and ask their mother and father if something like this ever happened. Sarah did know this story, but it wouldn't have mattered. If she didn't, I would have heard the words, nearly bleed to death, and um, I don't deserve to live. And I'd say, go home and ask your mother if someone nearly bled to death or did bleed to death. And someone who felt they didn't deserve to live and she'd have come back with the story it wouldn't have mattered.
0: Wow. Cause you have the, also the case in um, one of the first cases you talk about in your book is the young man who dies of hypothermia.
1: Or sorry, For he doesn't dying.
0: die, sorry, but he speaks to that he can't sleep through the night.
1: Exactly. He, he wakes up in the middle of the night, uh, starting after his 19th birthday. He's fine at 18, but at 19, he wakes up shivering and freezing and puts 10 blankets on and can't sleep and doesn't know the story about his father's brother who died at 19, checking the power lines up in Yellowknife, which is in the Northern territories of Canada. So what happens is he goes out one day to check the power lines and he loses his way back in a blizzard and he dies. And at the same age, 19, this boy starts shaking and shivering and freezing and, and, and then I told him to go home and ask his daddy finds a... Or it was his mom's brother, I think. And to go home... or I forget now. Gosh, I forget what it was. It was his mom's brother. Mom's brother. That. Good, good, yeah. good. Ask his mom. And, and so the mom tells him the story. And it was awesome. So, he, so we wow. worked with the story. I did the same thing. I put footprints out for the uncle in the in the office. And I said, close your eyes and tell your uncle what's been happening to you. And he, you know, he's crying. He's saying... I, I'm freezing I can't sleep I had terrible insomnia it's just terrible and then I said to him tell your uncle these words and this is what happened to you and you know it's kind of the first time he makes the connection even though yeah. he knows the story and this is what happens to you Ooh, that
0: a powerful moment
1: yeah and then we I do this intervention with him and and then he you know it it, it heals it but that's the that's the crazy thing we're walking around with symptoms we can't explain, and, and it, it, they're explainable once we do our homework. Once we peel back the layers, the, unveil the curtains, and start asking questions about our family history, you know that's why in the book I ask people to do a, a family tree, a genogram. Yeah, actually, what I call traumagram because traumagram, we have to yeah. because we have to look at the traumas in our family history going back three generations. Because that's what the epigenetics um, science tells us—that this stuff can live in our bodies as stress responses for three generations.
0: Yeah, the your book I would imagine in some ways does ruffle a lot of things, or like create a lot of. um, Because when you think of traditional psychotherapy or psychology, was there a lot of thought on epigenetics and the influence in that like three generations ago? Like,
1: was that an accepted theory? It's a brand new field. So psychology is now changing. You know, I write for Psychology Today, some articles and my book, uh, you know, it won the Silver Nautilus Award in psychology. So it's changing the way we think in psychology that we no longer can ignore the traumas of generations past. We no longer can. Um, It's very much part of our history our template are the blueprint mm-hmm. and as you mentioned as you mentioned earlier it's not even just our mother father grandmother grandfather it can be uncles aunts it can be perpetrators who harmed our family it can be victims of our family it can also be former partners of the parents see um, here I know you work a lot with relationships here's a common dynamic dad has a fir- first wife or uh, a, uh, a a woman he's engaged to and she believes they're going to get married or the wife's and they have a child whatever the story and all of a sudden dad's tired of her dumps her not interested in her and he he meets our mo- our, our mom and he marries our mom and you know and they have us you know mm-hmm. son or daughter but the first wife and the first child don't do well they struggle emotionally they struggle with money Maybe the first woman doesn't trust men anymore, never gets married again. And then, the let's say a female, unconsciously identified with the first wife, can't have a relationship. Every time she goes to have a relationship, she doesn't either find somebody who hurts her or doesn't trust them to stay with her. Mm-hmm connected to the first I had this interesting case which which, which uh, I'll tell it's a very interesting case it's a short case I had a woman come to me one time who said I hate my husband and I hope he dies. And I said wow those are some wow. strong words. That's, uh, those are some strong words. Why don't you just um, consider separate- couples therapy? Is yeah, couples therapy yeah. or se- separating yeah. or something. Yeah. She said I can't leave him because one of our children will die. Now, listen to the interesting wow. language, right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Wait a minute. One of our children will die. What's that about? And because now she's given me trauma language. Yeah. And then I said, what did your husband do? She said, at breakfast, he sits and reads the paper. You know, what she's a, she's yeah. She's good. Yeah. She's gritting, her, she's gritting her teeth. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's not enough to hope he dies. What, what's the real story going on here? So I said, tell me about your father. Did he have a relationship before your mother? The father was married to a woman before. father was a doctor. Uh, the, uh, they were from England. And the father was married to this woman in England. And they had a child, a three-month-old baby. And the father goes to France. And he meets a French woman, gets married, and has a new family but because he leaves and no longer wants the first wife and the first baby the first baby a girl uh, died of pneumonia when she was 3 months old now had the father been around he might have recognized the signs of pneumonia mm-hmm. might have been able to help so do you see the interesting connection yeah. i i hate my husband and hope he dies is the first woman's feeling about the father and if he leaves one of the, and if i leave one of the children will die Right, the child died, but it's a, it's what we call a double identification. The client was identified with the first woman and the first child, thinking that if she that now she hates her husband the way the first wife hated her father. Yeah, and she can't leave lest uh, one of her children die, which is really what happened when the first when the father left, the child died. You get it?
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: It, it's so convoluted, but so easy to to tweeze out once, once we have connect, the tr-
0: yeah once you connect those dots right. what is the response that someone like like what was her response to that did she did the did use the footprints and then the mark
1: mark it was beautiful she we're in the session together and she looks at me and says you mean i i don't hate my husband <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't mine yeah, she said you mean i don't hate him and i said no no, this is, this is you're, you're identified with the first woman and her feelings. They're still together. Wow. America, yeah, they're still together. She had to piece out, which didn't belong to her. Which at that moment, I'm guessing
0: what happens, and I've seen this happen in, uh, you know, in other work with people, that all of a sudden they realize that the bags aren't theirs, that they can just put them down. That Beautifully put, know. Mark.
1: Beautifully put. The bags aren't theirs. They can just put them down.
0: Yeah, and for me like just uh, in reading your book there was so much um permission to look at things in a different way and you know recognizing patterns like you said looking at family systems and child attachment and what were your primary caregivers like but to be able to bring it beyond that space to allow more possibility I think really gives a lot of people hope that hey imagine if this wasn't mine imagine if this wasn't and then all of a sudden my struggle is not even mine it's someone else's and I your work just does such a beautiful job of giving people permission to look somewhere else, to also make it not about them, which is, thank you. I think, yeah. a different way of seeing things. Did your work, when you first started this work and you made that correlation with uh, Sarah, you know, in your first experience, and then as you picked up steam and you really were developing these theories and seeing all these connections... Did it, did it cause a lot of pushback or stir in the psychology community?
1: No, I had a great teacher, actually. After I discovered that, that these uh, remembrances live in our body and live in the family history, right around that time, I started to study the work of Bert Hellinger, who is the father, well, the, the mother of family constellations is Virginia Satir. Mm-hmm. And the father of family constellations is Bert Hellinger and so he, i would call him the father of family constellations yeah. and so um studying with him really let the light um uh uh the floodlight and um then it became very clear now it's been more accepted and accepted and nowadays as you mentioned um, even before our radio talk as we were talking it's in the zeitgeist this is just oh, yeah. the it's just the way it is. This is what we look at. We look at inherited trauma. I'm so glad to have been one of the first voices out there that was um, screaming in people's ears. You know, we've got to look in this direction. Well, it's encouraged
0: to be one of the first, you know, because right. you're you're treading a new path. You're forming new th- theories. You're producing new work.
1: Well, well, you know from my book, I had to. I lost my eyesight, right? I, I lost my own eyesight, and it came back. But it came back once I discovered uh, what the inherited trauma was, although I didn't know it was inherited trauma at the time, that's what sent me in this direction. I lost the vision, the vision in my left eye, and and I started to look for answers. And the answers led me to the fact that all my grandparents were orphaned in some way. They all lost their mothers when they were babies, and this wow. idea of losing the mother, uh, this break in the attachment, was heritable. And then I had a break in the attachment, of course, because it gets re-engineered. If it lives in the system, in the history, it often gets re-engineered. I had a break in the attachment with my mother. So I had inherited the feeling of being broken from a mother's love. I remember, I think I mentioned this in the book, I remember being five years old, running into my mother's room, crying into her clothes. Um, that I'd never see her again when she would just go to the store. (laughs) Wow, yeah. I would cry, Oh, never see her again. You're crying into her (laughs) scarves and nightgowns um, and and smelling her clothes, thinking that the only thing I'd have left of her was her smell, which was the truth for my four grandparents.
0: Yeah, as orphans.
1: They would have only had the smell of their mother's clothes, who died young. And I remember sharing this with my mom, um, saying, you know, mom, when I was little, I used to go in your, uh, before she died, I told her, um, I used to go in your room and cry in your clothes. And she looked at me and said, I did that too when my mother would leave the house. And my sister reading the book said, honey, I did that too when I left the house, when mom, when mom left the house. So the family pattern, which was heritable, which was inherited, was this anxiety that we would be, uh, there's no, there's no mother there that were broken from our mother's love that we're alone and this anxiety this aloneness was the real cause of my vision loss and once I did the work around it mark my vision came back and it was awesome uh-huh. so and that's what led me on this quest to teach the the world I work a lot with physical symptoms mm-hmm. but, um, to teach us that it's that if we're constricted in some way the pathway out, probably isn't very far far away we just have to peel back some of the layers
0: yeah i see that a lot in the you know the patterns that i see in autoimmune in yeah. you know where i've had numerous clients who've had triggered ra at very young ages rheumatoid arthritis for people that don't know that term where it's triggered from a significant emotional
1: event and usually a break in the bond with the mother
0: yeah, so actually both of those are divorces of parents at different ages. One at five, which, you know, getting RA at five, yeah. um, being able to use pain in order to connect with mom. You know, mom yeah. would take her to the hospital, blah, 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 blah. And it's, in, it's fascinating to start to make our physical manifestations to correlate them back to emotional trauma, which you start to see, you know, the work of Biology of Belief from Bruce Lipton, yeah, exactly. uh, Joe Dispenza's work looking yeah. at epigenetics. And this field of epigenetics—the idea that we can, in real time, change our epigenetics—that in real time we can, through work like you're doing, be able to release emotions that are in there. And I, you know, for me personally, um, I feel like you're doing a lot of shamanistic work. Ah, I like It is very shamanistic in that yeah. you're looking at the connections in a in a scientific way, and
1: yeah, it's, it's shamanistic in the sense that. Yes, we need an intervention of sorts that is, that is meaningful or, or we won't pra- do the practice. But you know, our, your job and my job as clinicians is that we help our clients calm the brain stress response, yeah. whether, whether we've inherited it or whether it comes from early trauma. And to do this, we need to have new experiences that are powerful enough to override the stress response.
0: Yeah, to shift it, to re uh, yeah. recode it. So recode
1: it rewire it recode yeah. it and then we need to practice as you know from the work that you mentioned we need to practice the new feelings and the new sensations associated with the experience and that's how we uh, create new neural pathways that's how we we release feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and gaba that's how we stimulate new uh Feel good hormones like estrogen, oxytocin. That's also how we change the way our genes function and, for future and,
0: generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Work. well, and the and the the work is out there with mice. They're able to reverse trauma symptoms in mice. So they take the same stressed mice, yeah, and then they unstress them by putting them in positive environments. And not only do the behavior shift, but the fearful epigenetic signature is less likely to pass to future generations. In other words, it it tames, it calms, it begins to nullify the biological stress response. And these experiences, these positive experiences, you know, like the ones I described Sarah had with grandma and grandpa, or, you know, the other cases I've mentioned, but they can be experiences of receiving comfort or support. Like Sarah could feel her grandpa saying, hey, I'm there for you now, just breathe back to me. Mm -hmm. or supported by the grandmother that says when you feel that you deserve to die I'm here just breathe to me or the dad saying I've got this you don't have to they can be experiences of receiving comfort or support or experiences of compassion or gratitude or, or, or practicing generosity or loving kindness or mindfulness ultimately anything that allows us to feel strength or peace inside the experiences themselves feed the prefrontal cortex and help us reframe the stress response so it is a chance to calm down you know that's what 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 we're doing is we're just pulling engagement away from the limbic brain yeah and bringing engagement to the prefrontal cortex the more we can integrate it yeah yeah it's in the work that you're doing
0: and you were talking about the repeated patterns that you look at these repeated experiences and if we say relationally you know one that i for sure i think we all see commonly and probably have participated in the choosing of unavailability or people who wound us. And I love that you said that within the pain is the wisdom within the trigger is the actual gold, like the space. You know, like I think of it as in every moment that triggers you is actually an invitation for mastery.
1: Oh, Beautifully, beautifully put, beautifully put. I think I post something that the seed of our, uh, Oh gosh, I don't even know how I say it. But the seed of our expansion is located in the contraction. But the trauma itself, just like you said, the trauma itself is an invitation for mastery. I love that. You know, it's interesting. um, When we're working in relationships, uh, I've always loved this quote by Stephen and Andrea Levine. Um, I think I even have it in the book. The distance from your pain, your grief, your unattended wounds is the distance from your partner. Mm. And so we've got to go into these wounds because that's also where the magic is, is what we're saying. Um, you know, we have to ask, are we truly available? Are we truly available for a relationship? Are there generational patterns blocking us from connecting deeply with our partner? Simple patterns, Mark. Mm-hmm. For example, if, if uh, let's say, a woman's father cheated on the mother or hurt or left the mother, um, it can be hard for the woman to trust her partner. mm mm-hmm. If we haven't bonded with our mother, we can have difficulty bonding with our partner. These are so simple. Or if our grandmother, let's say, died in childbirth, she dies in childbirth. The women in the system can be afraid to get married and have children because unconsciously they know that getting married could lead to children and and unconsciously they could be, they could die. And the men in the same system, Mark, could be afraid to commit to a woman because for fear that their sexuality Could harm or kill their partner.
0: Wow. Like all living in the nuances, you know, all this, all this like magical gold living in the nuances of the information that we think we've, I think in a lot of ways, didn't know was so incredibly valuable to putting pieces together. I think for anyone listening, one, uh, Thank you for your work. Thank you for coming on. You're so welcome. My pleasure. It's been, I've been sitting here just with, I mean, there's no video, but for those of you listening, my jaw has just been open being like, whoa, whoa. Um, So thank you. You're so welcome. My pleasure. It's just, just a pleasure to talk with you, Mark. And uh, for the people listening who are going like, I want to figure this out. I want to put these pieces together. Like I've been reading book after book and I'm saying, go pick up this book. Uh, It didn't start with you and how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. I'll make sure to link it out in the show notes.
1: You also have some courses on your website. Did you want to share
0: information about those too?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, come to my website. All sorts of good things going on, trainings and workshops. Uh, my website is n.com
0: Perfect. And on there, there's information about... Um, looking at your family, your
1: tra- what do you they call it? A trauma tree? <laughs> uh, a trauma gram? Yeah, I, I have some questions there that people want to examine, both uh, family history questions and early trauma questions.
0: And you have a relationship course too, so yeah, but... um, I'm excited for everyone to check these out. Mark, I, I know that you have like a you know a bunch of workshops coming up, so are, those are on your website too.
1: Yes, yes, everything's Perfect. there, Mark.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I'm I'm incredibly grateful and. I love that these books that I have read that have like shattered my paradigm of how I think I'm now getting to meet the minds who've uh, written them. So uh, I'm eternally grateful. Thank you. Mark, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure.